Happy New Year, Chandler. Happy New Year, Jacob. It's 2020. It is. I believe we're going to have to do a uh, a best of the decade list at some point. We will. Hopefully before we're shipped off to war. Am I the only one looking forward to World War III? <laughs> I, I can't wait for the World War III movies. This is going to be great. It'll be, it'll be a renaissance. There'll be classics one day. Saving Private Brian. Yeah, very, very excited. Saving Private Brian sounds like a like a Monty Python version of a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I, I'd see it. I would see it. They are also, ironically enough, mostly dead. Mostly dead. Mo- most of them are dead. Another one just died the other day. <laughs> they did. It was oh, like no. a it was like a collaborator. It wasn't like one of them. Oh, which ones are still alive? Eric Idle, John Cleese. That's about it. No, uh, uh, Graham Chapman. No, Graham Chapman was the first of them to go. No, that's right. That's right. Who am I thinking of? Michael Palin. That's what I'm thinking of. He's alive. He's probably still kicking it. Yeah. Yeah, they're all chilling. I guess the big ones. Oh, um, the uh, Terry Gilliam. All right, so never mind. Most of them are actually alive. The good ones are alive. Most of them are alive, but they never want to work together again, so... That's fair. Eric Idle seems like an agreeable guy. Yeah, but I'm not sure Eric Idle was was the problem. Here's looking at you, uh, John Cleese and Terry Gilliam and everyone else. To be fair, they were the best ones. Right, and with greatness comes great... uh, I don't know where I was going with that. I think I like Terry Gilliam more than I like John Cleese, just because... John Cleese did not make Brazil. But uh, John Cleese is just an actor. So, yeah, there's less to judge him for. Uh, A Fish Called Wanda, uh, it's probably my favorite performance of his. I like the other guy in that movie. I forget his name. Yes. Calvin Klein. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Quick, quick little sidebar before we get into it. Uh, Did you at all listen to the A24? No, the Mark Kermode podcast with him and Ryan Johnson. I did not. Well, they're talking about Knives Out. And uh, Ryan Johnson is also apparently a huge fan of Poro. Oh, good. And he, he... Well, okay. Anyone who is a murder mystery fan yeah. is, you know... He said he's a huge fan of, you know, Agatha Christie and the murder mystery as a genre. And he said he also grew up watching a lot of Poro. There you go. Maybe I should meet with Ryan Johnson <laughs> and we can bond over uh, some, uh, some good old British murder mysteries. I think he said something about the... Oh, yeah. There's like a trope name for this called the something sleuth. I think it's just the gentlemanly sleuth. I don't know. I don't care that much. I'm not the same Poirot fan. Not because I've seen it and don't like it because I have not seen it. Well, maybe you should. I do like Kenneth Branagh's mustache in Murder on the Orient Express. I will give you that. Well, that that is one hell of a mustache. That is a fantastic mustache. One of the best. 10 out of 10. Him and Kurt Russell in Hateful Eight. Some of the best mustaches oh, I've yeah. ever seen. Uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and her. That's another great mustache. Sure. I'm trying to I'm trying to think of some other ones. Oh, Lee Van Cleef in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Adam Sandler has a good mustache in Uncut Gems. Does he have a mustache? I think it is. No, no. It's more of a goatee. Yeah. That's what it is. And it, it, well, there we go. Well, I'll just rank it as, a, as one of the top 10 goatees in film. It is. I can't think of any other ones. TBH. Oh, you know who? Michael Shannon. He's got a great goatee in Knives Out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Goatee is reserved for the slimiest of people. It's certainly not a look that everyone can pull off. It isn't. And I just automatically assume whenever I see a guy in a movie with a goatee that if he is not currently the bad guy, he will be by the end of the movie. Speaking of uh, uncut gems, you and I were on the Nothing with Nick Johnson podcast. Yes. And we did a a, talked about our top 10 favorite movies of the year list. Very detailed. uh, Yeah, people should go check that out. If yes, so episode, I don't know what episode it is. The most recent one at the time of this podcast, first one of 2020. We'll vaguely discuss our our favorites from 2019 at a later time, but not the next episode, but the one after it. I think we will be reviewing our top 10 of the decade. Oh, you know, I just solidified that list today. Did you? I did. Good. I will. The only spoiler I will give you is that I unfortunately had to kick off uh, First Reformed. Well, you, I won't be crying. I I know you won't care, but I it was hard. Uh, you know, I I can relate. You know, I don't have the same like um, 
difficulty making these lists as you do. I can usually hammer a list out, give it like two or three tweaks, and then be pretty satisfied with it. I don't have a problem making them. You well, yeah, you don't have a problem. I just keep yes. You have a problem them. solidifying them. Yes, they always they change. For the record, he was literally editing his top ten list as we were recording next podcast. I literally, I had to make a judgment call as soon as it got to and me. And he still didn't put the Irishman on there. No, of course not. Oh no, I not like it a lot. Of course not. I prefer concise storytelling like taxi driver when possible of course of course i don't know it, it was between i think last black man in san francisco and i was considering i think the nightingale or oh yeah yeah the irishman Big so it, it had a chance yeah i like the last black man more it it just had more kind of new filmmaking and it was kind of vi- it was like the techniques themselves were vibrant you could tell that uh, whoever what was the director oh joe talbot yeah uh, talbot was having you know fun with it and trying new stuff it was it felt new and yeah i, I felt that was worthwhile pointing out in my top 10 of the year list no i definitely can't disagree i mean i put it on mine over the irishman too but still sad pacino a- acted his little dunka chino heart out i will always love al pacino so who uh Last Black Man in San Francisco can't take that away from him. Fair. So, eventually we will do our our 2020, or no, 2010s, best of 2010s review, and that episode will be just devoted to that. And then we'll do the best of the 2020s. Currently, the only one playing right now is The Grudge, so that will be... (laughs) That'll be the first and only movie on the list. Yeah, so what are we going to do in January when there's nothing out and we got a pair movie with an old BFI movie? Uh, well, there are some things that will be coming out. I was thinking if once we have our 2020 review, that'll be that'll be episode nine, and that'll be kind of the end of this experimental phase we're going through of trying uh, to figure yes. out what what we're doing. Of course. Uh, and then after that, I think I think it'll be time to bring on some guests, maybe. Oh. Uh. Fantastic. All right, show me this list you got. Okay, let's take a look. So I mentioned this in our last podcast that I I have an Excel spreadsheet of every movie that I watch. This is the – I just completed the 2019 one, which makes it the third year in a row that I have meticulously kept tabs on what I watch, when I watch, and – Yeah. You know. A bunch of data on all this stuff. So, have you opened it? Uh, no, I have not. Because okay. you told me not to. All right, we'll take a look. So, there should be a bunch of tabs at the bottom. Yeah. Oh God, yes, there are. Okay. The the first page you're looking at that's just a color code. Oh uh, yeah. Key. He is go- okay. Should I explain what I'm seeing here? You you can you can maybe click on December. That'd be a good. Well, should I at least explain? this opening sheet of numbers sure sure, please do because let me tell you he it looks like it looks like the little uh carpet uh, the paint chip thing you see it at a a home depot there's is just a a wide assortment of colors here he has he has this whole thing sorted by rating uh director is this one two three four five six by the director what does this mean so I kind of abandoned that halfway through the year and then just deleted it at the end because it wasn't a statistic oh, okay. I wanted. But it was – let's say I watched two Kurosawa movies in one month. Oh, Then okay. I put a little two by it and yeah, yeah. so and such. Okay. All right. So – oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. So he also has – he has a little – he he organizes it by location – and you would think, okay, he's got one for TV, one for theater, maybe one for computer. And he does, but he <laughs> has Villa Blanco laptop, Villa Blanco computer, Villa Blanco TV, SCS work computer, SCS work laptop. He has them organized, but not by not only the actual device, but the brand and model of the device as well. And all the theaters he has, he has listed every theater that he frequents. The AMC Center Point Eleven, Harkins Arizona Mills, Tempe Marketplace, Awatuki. My God. So I've since actually updated some of the stuff on here. Oh, no. Uh, What now? Progressively, each list is getting better organized. Um, Yeah. More like slimming it. It's slimming it down 
Because this, I think I went too far this year. Uh, yeah, uh, a little. Actually, a lot of that stuff is outdated. How do you... But um, Okay. So what I do now is I can make a, a little macro uh, program that tells Excel that whenever I key in a certain thing, it does... I do... I key in X and it does Y, right? Okay. So yeah. I've changed it so that it's no longer – I'm no longer saying AMC center point 11. I'm yeah. saying if this box contains AMC, make it this color. So I don't need to put every single theater in there. I just put in the, the brand – the like the chains yeah. or I just put in – if it's my work computer, it's this color or if it's – okay. So on and so forth. So uh, there's a lot less options there now. All right. Well, I'm going to click through a month here and go to December. The other thing I did was for the longest time I had my score out of 100. I think you might see it in the later months. It's pretty much out of 10 because you go by 10. So in, yeah. in the I just finished uh, programming the next year's list, 2020s. I just shifted it to out of 10 with, with no decimals, just a straight... One two three four five six seven eight nine ten. Oh my god! You, you have you have holy shit! You have it sorted by who you watched it with. Yes, of course. <laughs> that that let, let me say one thing: who I watch it with is probably the most holy important shit. of all of them. Your poor mother. What did she watch? <laughs> she watched Arsenic and Old. Oh, that's that's not a bad one. Arsenic and Old Lace. I showed her uh, not in December, but is in November. I showed her Still Walking, and she really loved that one. Oh, that one's gr- oh god, these poor these poor people you took to see cats. Actually, they took me to see cats. Oh no, <laughs> my high school friends. Oh no, oh god. Yep. Well. And, oh, these poor people. The ho- Star Wars holiday special. I'll admit, when I was at this last page, I was I was kind of laughing at, at the extent you went with this, but this is actually kind of interesting. I could I could sit here for a bit. Yeah, I you know, <laughs> I kind of like the mindless tedium of filling this out every once in a while. Oh my god! It's hey, there I am. Yeah, there, October eleventh and twelfth for the Tucson Film Festival. There oh I yeah, am. yeah. Oh my god, you really were a- averaging like one movie a day at least for October. It came out to that in the uh, in the year summary. I was. 378 movies. So just about just about a movie a day. Oh, no, okay. I'm looking here. Yeah, okay. So, I'm sorry. How many did you have for this year? Well, you can go to the uh, the year tab. The year tab. Okay. Uh, yes. It's one of the beginning. Okay. So actually, so scroll down and you'll see monthly movie chart. Yes. And this is the one I prefer. I actually, in the most recent one, I deleted the chart where it's just a blank list of every movie I watched. And uh-huh. I prefer the one, the second one, where it's just lists by month. It automatically calculates based on the numbers, yada, yada, yada. And 378 was the final tally for 2019, which I actually found uh, it, it's different from my Letterboxd account because Letterboxd doesn't count TV movies or some shorter films. Huh. So I watched a bunch of Agatha Christie's uh, Poirot episodes in October mm-hmm. or whenever it was, and Letterboxd doesn't count that, but they're 90 minutes long, and I don't care if they're made for TV or not. They're a movie. That's how I feel about some of... Uh, I watch a, a fair amount of YouTube documentaries, like people who will make like little YouTube videos that are like 90 plus minutes on certain subjects. Not like, you know, r- essays, but like legit documentaries. And whenever they're listed on Letterboxd, I'm just thinking, okay, I sat here for 90 minutes and watched something. That's a movie. I honestly would like the uh, the prequel, the Plinkett prequel reviews to be- I would love be... the Plinkett. Yeah, I, watched, I was literally just watching those, as you uh, called those them. Are, those are movies. Those those are- they're, they're examinations. I mean, they're very niche movies, but they're movies. Yeah. The, the fun stuff, if you go over to Directors, which is the last tab- Wow. I compiled- you really did go through all Jean-Pierre Melville's stuff. I really did. It's it's clear that he was the director I watched the most of. Good, good amount of Kurosawa as well. Always. I'm actually uh, shocked at how little 
uh, Coen Brothers I watched this year. Dude, same. Because they're usually rewatch a lot of their stuff, but this year, same. Uh, well, or last year, I should say, I didn't do much of that. I think the only one I watched last year, I, I watched Inside Lewin Davis like every other month. I did that one, but I only did that once last year, and I watched The Big Lebowski once, and I didn't watch anything else. Anything else. Wow. I don't even think I've finished The Big Lebowski. Huh. So, final final thoughts on this excessive uh, record keeping? Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just excited to see where it's going to go. This definitely... Now, here's my quick question. Did you know uh, how to use Excel macros before you started doing this? No. You literally learned how to do Excel macros so you could log your movies. Uh, yeah, essentially. Well, oh, no. When I first started, <laughs> I... Well... <laughs> When I first started, I actually color-coded manually. So you can imagine going through each of these entries and then picking the Yes, you're running out of colors, Jacob. You're going to need extra, like, icons, like a mantis shrimp, to log all your movies. Yeah, I probably, If you think this isn't going in my... If you think this isn't going in our Snapchat group chat, you're wrong. Well, okay, okay, fine. Be like that. Not now, but after the... Sure. Sure. I showed it to my dad and he was like, you know, you can do this all automatically. And that was the start of a a long, fruitful friendship with Excel macros. (laughs) Your dad taught you how to do it? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty simple. Except it's not. I was about to say, my brother is literally taking a class right now solely for uh, Excel macros. Well, it's one of those things that the basic principle of it is very simple. And... But it can get very complicated very quickly when you want to do more than just color code stupid stuff. Like that, I could teach you how to do it in about two minutes. But well, yeah, but that's, that's not all yeah. that you got, though. It, it's also one of those things where, like, if I want to change the macro, mm-hmm. give up. It's better to just remake it entirely than to edit an already existing one. Which is why I don't ever change... The process in the mid- middle of a year. It's always at the end of a year. Okay. Even if it sucks. Like, I realize I made a horrible mistake, which I did, but... What blows my mind about this the most is that you have all this, and yet you're still very active on Letterboxd. Well, Letterboxd takes like five seconds to, to update. Well, for you, maybe. Look at my Letterboxd diaries. I write a lot. Well, yeah, but that's different. I. You're more about the numbers. Yeah, and one of the things I'm very curious to see, now that we're getting, now that I've completed three years of this, I can start tracking, you know, over many months, what's the, you know, how many I've watched and all that stuff. But that's, yeah, that's for when I really have nothing better to do with my time. You could also, you could go through and you can uh, track your movie watching trends if you wanted to. I could. That would... Certainly take some finessing of it would you wouldn't have the to, data. you would probably need to hire an analyst yeah well here's the thing uh, years in the future when I when I have the option to hire an analyst this information <laughs> will be here it will and it's very it's very well organized I'll give you that I I'm proud of my letterbox but this is almost making me want to take it a step further but I'm not about to learn Excel macros no. to do so no look your your letterbox is pretty good for what it is. You got the diary thing going on. You don't really need much else. I do a meme review every once in a while. I think you should add, um, you should have a, like a PDF for the show notes so people can actually see what you got going on. Yeah, I might share the the file or at least. At least for one year. Well, I might uh, take like December and just make a PDF of that. There you go. Just give a little taste of. Of what it is. People can see how the other half lives. Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah. Uncut gems. Uncut gems. Onto the meat of the of the episode. Now here's a here's a quick question. Before you saw Uncut Gems, did you do any like uh did you rewatch Good Time or anything? Nope. Okay. I, I, I didn't uh, get around to it. I I don't know what it is about these guys, the Safety brothers, but they're very interesting to me. And the Criterion channel right now has, a, like, a Safety Brothers collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically enough, the only thing that isn't on there is Good Time, but I own Good Time. 
And I think me and you were pretty similar on how we felt about Good Time. I think we both watched it around the same time. We're like, oh, this is pretty good, but, you know, nothing amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I watched it again recently. I went through and I watched... They have some really good documentaries on the Criterion channel about these guys. Um, just the way that they shoot. It's very interesting to me. Um, uh, they're brothers. Right. Josh and Benny Safdie. Uh, Benny Safdie... Oh, let me check real quick. Hold on. I didn't make sure. I always get them mixed up. I think Benny Safdie is the one who acts as well. Yes, Benny Safdie. Uh, in um, un, or in Good Time, do you remember the uh, brother who gets uh, incarcerated? Yeah, no, I remember that that was... Yeah, it was yeah. one of the directors. Well, something else that's interesting to me is that they're obviously... They, they co-direct the film much like the Coen brothers do. Uh, and Benny Safdie is also nine times out of ten the boom operator. Really? Yeah. Director and boom up? Director and boom up, yeah. Because they have, like, a collection of their short films in the Criterion channel. And a lot of their short films, like, they did everything. They they were producers. They shot it. They sound mixed it. They were the boom ops. um, And uh, there's just a whole lot of, like, content in the Criterion channel that basically details their process so it got me interested in looking in and a lot of their short films are okay you know they're very interesting uh kind of some of them are kind of lacking in a lot of the uh, technical aspects but uh i went in with this like um style in mind of just how they make a film and i don't know what it is it but it good time just felt like a completely different movie to me when i saw it this this last time really yeah i know i know quite a few people who have said a similar thing and like it a lot. I really like it. And uh, the one of the main reasons why I like it, and it's a huge reason why I like Uncut Gems so much, is that they are very... They try their hardest to shatter the illusion of film. Not in the sense that their things don't look cinematic, but a lot of the casting that they do is like real people. Like, I don't know if you remember in Good Time when um, uh, uh, Robert Pattinson and Jennifer Jason Leigh go to, like, that bail bondsman, the Jewish bail bondsman. Yeah. Uh, that's a real bail bondsman that they met and they cast. And a lot of the people in Uncut Gems are, like, real, you know, really do what they're, they're cast. So, when you say shatter the illusion of film, you're, you're not... Saying you're not meaning that is in kind of a fourth wall sense. Yes, I I I mean as they're trying to make it look as as least polished as they can. Okay. Well, I was also thinking of it as in there's this this there's this idea that you need to cast people actors in roles, and filmmakers have like these preconceived notions of what you need to do to make a good movie. Yeah, and it, they're also kind of shattering that illusion where you really can just get anyone if if you know how to direct them and they're they they work for the scene and often i found more and more uh lately that if they have an interesting face if someone has an interesting face you can get away yeah. with a lot and that's that's exactly what it's uh what i love so much about uncut gems is um uh, another thing that ironically enough the cone brothers do a lot is that they don't write characters then cast actors for it they like meet actors and they write characters specifically to suit those actors strengths like uh robert pattinson saw a still from their movie heaven knows what that came out in 2014 just a still and robert pattinson like contacted them saying hey i want to work with you or whatever and they were trying to get uncut gems made at that time who uh, in 2012 they wrote the movie with sandler in mind mm-hmm and then they were approached by Robert Pattinson. He said he wanted to do a movie. And they said, okay, this could be the way we get to Uncut Gems. So they wrote an entire movie around Robert Pattinson, who they said had this quality about him, who, like, he was always trying to hide his face, you know? Because, you know, people reckon he's a very recognizable person, very good looking man. Um, so they wrote, like, the character of Connie, you know, who's always trying, he's the entire movie, he's trying to escape from the cops and he's walking down streets, you know, looking away from people. So they just took that aspect about Robert Pattinson, made a character out of it, and it's an amazing character and performance. So definitely recommend you watch Good Time again, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Uncut Gems. I'd be curious. So, you, well, you were saying that you had seen some of the behind the scenes stuff of them. 
Have you seen anything that has illuminated their directing style and how they share the burden of being co-directors? Because that's always fascinated me of like, how can you possibly direct something with someone else? Yeah. Ironically enough, again, I hate to keep making the same comparison, but they they take the same approach that the Coen brothers do because they write these movies together. And if they have any disagreement, it's settled in the writing process. So they both go into a film production on the exact same page. And they'll have, like, minor um, arguments about, you know, certain aspects of performance or lighting. But nine times out of ten, they're thinking the exact same thing and want the exact same thing out of a scene. So it doesn't happen a lot. Which, it's just... You say that, but I'm just thinking, like, it's one thing to agree on a script. Yeah. But the thing is, is that you can have words on the page and agree on all the words... But both people can have very different images in their mind yeah. based on that. And the amount of communication that would have to go into making sure you're on the exact same page. Because that's not – the script doesn't get you on the exact same page. Something more has to get you there. Yeah, and I think that another huge part of that is just the fact that they're brothers. Yeah. Brothers have a very um, – just siblings in general have a, yeah, a very similar wavelength. Um, but no, none of the documentaries went too in depth about that. I mean, they they do talk about how you know they they got around to making movies and how they you know I there's again I really recommend the stuff that's on the Criterion Channel because yeah, I'll give it a watch for filmmaking alone. It's very interesting. Uh, but yeah, especially because I you know listen to a lot of podcasts too, and a lot of the things they did with Uncut Gems just blow my mind. Uh, especially one of the huge parts of the movie that I think is overlooked in the grand scheme of things is just. The layered dialogue. You think that's overlooked? I don't know. I feel like people are talking more about Sandler and just the script in general, but there, I don't think there's ever, there's hardly ever a moment where it's like one person talks, the other person listens, the other person responds. It is literally like two hours of people shouting over each other. And apparently a lot of those lines are ADR. I don't believe uh, it. Another, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Another thing I was, you know, listening to in a podcast uh, with them is that they, like, took an entire script of ADR because they wanted certain things to be shouted in certain scenes, like the scene where they can't get the door open. And they took it to one of the post-production guys, and he basically said, this is a completely different movie. Like, this is a whole separate movie in your ADR. And they still did it. And I think a lot of that stuff is very seamless. Interesting. But it's one of the things I appreciate most about this movie because it's a very good script, I think. See, here's the thing. It's it's easy to ignore the script when you are watching it because yeah. it is so tense and Adam Sandler is giving that performance and it's less about what is being said and more about what the the feeling of the different voices coming together in kind of this cacophony of of sounds. Yeah. It's using dialogue in two different ways. The first way is obviously to communicate information about the characters and the situation. And then in some scenes, it's also to create that sense of confusion and using dialogue to create kind of this disjointed rhythm to things, um, which in that sense, it's it's really great. And I'm really surprised to hear that a lot of it was ADR. A lot. A lot. Yeah. Good for them. I, I still have not unlocked the secrets of ADR myself. But. ADR is tough. Yeah. Uh, well, cause that's that's the crazy another th- crazy part about this whole thing is that apparently the the department they work with the most on set is the sound department. Again, you know, he being one of the boom operators, but they're always like they talk to their sound guy more than they talk to their DP. I can see it because the w- the way that they uh, the shoot their films is very it's almost kind of standard in a way where yeah. it's. Uh, the type and the shot selection and the blocking isn't particularly complicated. You know, they just get a lot of coverage of different things and it's a lot of just the way they're editing it together quickly. And then the dialogue that creates the sense of unease that you have. So I can see how like once you get, you work with the DP and you get the idea of how it needs to be shot, like steady cam and all those different decisions have been made. Mm-hmm. Where you wouldn't need to like talk to them all that much, and it seems very reactionary. The camera work, 
almost documentary like. Yeah, well, certainly the way that they they film kind of like wide shots sometimes at steady cam and just kind of following people around. And like another thing I mentioned on Nick's podcast, the fact that they don't close down the streets, I think really that's adds. That's great. That adds a lot. You, you don't even need to know that that's the case. Once someone tells you that, it seems like a brilliant thing yeah. that is inherently obvious when you think back on it. Of course, that that looked felt very real, but when you're watching it, you're just kind of engrossed and it just you know, you're going with the flow. But looking back on it, it's like, wow, that, yeah, I could see how every single person there was just there. Yeah, and I don't think this entire movie really ever has a moment where the tension lets up. There are, there are a few moments. I think there's a, there was a part about two thirds of the way through that it kind of just, just sagged just a little for me. I think that was, uh, you talk about like right around the time um, where he's kind of, it feels more like a divorce movie. Yeah, the kid goes and takes a, a piss in one of the neighbor's apartments. And yeah, he goes yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. I around can that see area. that. I can see that. It kind that. of, the tension lets up around there. Yeah. For a little bit. And that's more so just to give you a little room to breathe and then catapult you into the final act. The last like 30, 45 minutes of that movie. Yeah. That is one of the most insane endings I've seen to a movie in a while. So to give a little, uh, little introduction halfway through our discussion here, Uncut Gems <laughs> is... A movie by the Safdie brothers starring Adam Sandler uh, about a uh, a jeweler in the New York Diamond District who makes some, some risky bets in hopes to pay off his debts and yada yada. Basically going and double or nothing on his entire life. <laughs> just keeps going double or nothing. It, it, it is a story about a... A dumb man making increasingly dumb decisions for about two hours. It's like if you were playing blackjack and you just kept saying, hit me. <laughs> and you had like 20 cards on the table. And the dealer was like, y you sure? Yeah, hit me. <laughs> and he just kept... And he's, hoping, he's banking that they're all like twos or all aces. Yep. And then they all manage to be aces. And then he says, hit me again. <laughs> and gets kicked out of the casino. <laughs> Uh, yeah, again, it, it it does remind me a lot of Killing of Chinese Bookie, but I I found this one to be much more entertaining and realized. You know, I feel infinitely like more because I think one of my complaints about Killing of a Chinese Bookie was that the the character aspects seemed to be there, but there wasn't anything any greater point that I was feeling like the character didn't come together for me in any sense. And well, here, yeah. Sandler Sandler's character very much feels more fully realized than I think Killing of a Chinese Bookie displayed. And no, I agree. You get you get the sense of who the character is, why they're doing the things they're doing, and the kind of inevitability of the 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 almost the idiocy of their situation. Right, where I never with Killing of Chinese Bookie, I never really got a, a hold on anything that Cosmo was was doing he was just kind of going through the motions of being I mean it's it's hard to sympathize with Cosmo when he literally gets his uh debts paid off and immediately goes back and gambles again but and it all, and the thing with that is like that seems like a very like a character a big character thing that you know pays off debt immediately racks up another one and yet there's nothing no further part of the movie that explores that for me I also think a huge part of why this one is just better and good overall is the fact that there's something about casting Adam Sandler. There's something magical about an Adam Sandler movie where he tries, where no matter what he's doing, you're kind of just rooting for him. Well, because he's Adam Sandler. He's he, he As bad as some of his movies are, he's a very likable presence. He's just kind of like a dad. He is. He's a goofy in ev dad. In everything he does. Yeah. Even in his worst stuff. But- here, that energy's focused and directed at a certain, creating a certain uh, character. I don't think there's a single other actor th who I would be on board with as much as I would be on board with Sander Sandler in this role. Who else could have done it? Uh, who else but Sandler? I do. F mm. No one. That's the answer. Yeah. Because 
no one will have that likability because part of me thought, well, what if you get someone like William H. Macy, but you're playing more into the patheticness of it all because he's an inherently pathetic man. And then I thought, what about Jeff Bridges? And then if if they if you thought it was tough for the ADR people with the Sandler, imagine having Jeff Bridges ADR all his lines. Look, the movie was written for Sandler, so it obviously no one else can play it. No, you're right. All right, so. Obviously, the both of us, we, we quite like Uncut Gems. I'm a huge fan. It's great. But can we discuss for a second the fact that Uncut Gems has a audience score of C+. On Google, it has a 2.5 average rating out of 5. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 52%. That doesn't surprise me at all. Did you, How many people were in the theater when you saw it? It was fairly, fairly uh, full. Not I, packed. I saw it in what was essentially a packed theater. Um, there was a woman next to me who, you know, I go to the movies a lot. I see a lot of, um, when I go by myself, typically I see, you know, more more indie releases. And when I go to those indie movies, I never see women like the woman who was sitting next to me. And I think that a huge part of why the audience score is so low is that People see Adam Sandler and they expect something. And I know you can watch the trailer or the poster and maybe you won't expect what you get. I know something like Sandy Wexler looks very different. It's definitely Adam Sandler doing a character. But I think a lot of people went into this looking for a lighthearted Sandler movie and were just clawing at their armchair for two hours and then simply rated the movie low out of spite. Because there was a woman next to me who, for the entirety of the movie, just looked like she was about to pee. She was terrified. <laughs> she was nervous. She was kind of, like, twitching. Every mistake Sandler made from, like, the 90-minute point on was accompanied by a very audible, oh, no. And I can just imagine that a lot of people went into this expecting something like Grown Ups or The Ridiculous Six and were just petrified at what they saw. Here, Here's an, a question. If you are reviewing a movie, is it better to give your opinion and reaction, or is it better to review from a state of not not objectivity? That would be the wrong way of putting it. Yeah, but of gearing your review towards you know like the wider audience of you're not saying this is how I reacted. Like this is like Uncut Gems is a great movie because I like it. Or would it better to be saying, to be, to say something like, Uncut Gems is a very tense movie that might not be for everyone. The way the way I see it is, I definitely don't. I definitely take the wider audience into consideration. I think most people haven't seen as many movies as we have, so obviously we're a little more, uh, a little more, a little less sensitive to certain aspects of movies, but. When I, like, review a movie or think about how I felt about a movie, I literally just think about how did I feel at the end of a movie and what are the objective things, like the filmmaking specifics, that really helped me achieve that feeling. Because I think most audience members are going in wanting to be entertained. Like, that's that's the, the baseline expectation of a movie. Yeah. It is interesting that if you review the movie based on filmmaking techniques, you're essentially making that – that review is for people who understand film. Like yeah. this is a well-made movie is different from saying this is a movie that is entertaining. Again, that's how I feel. You can say something like last year at Marion Bad. Mm -hmm. Very technically efficient movie, proficient movie. But I had little to no actual emotional reaction to it, so the actual filmmaking doesn't really apply to me. I mentioned this when we were talking about Parasite. The online review scores, they're not rating a movie. It's like, oh, this movie is 5 out of 10 quality-wise. That's not what it is. It's a 50% chance that you will like it. And that's... So... It's interesting that, you know, that kind of number is indicative of what an audience's chance of liking it is. And yet on our website, we the review 
that you wrote, and I would agree with the score, you give it five stars. Yeah. Which is a there's a disconnect between those two numbers. Interesting to think about. I'm not sure there's any greater point, but the point perhaps the point is is that that's the disconnect between the audience and the critic, which has come up a lot lately for yeah. a variety of movies. Well, I think a huge part of it also is that people, for some reason, like um, they don't understand that uh, when a movie makes you feel a certain way, like if you go to a horror movie and you're really scared, that's something that you think that the horror movie is good for. You're like, oh, it scared me. It's a good horror movie. If you go to a movie and you're like just tense the entire time, like maybe or maybe sad, like if you go to something like Schindler's List, yeah, you're going to be tense and sad. But you're like, oh, it was a Holocaust movie. It was supposed to be tense and sad because it's speaking to a larger truth comment on humanity or whatever. You go to a movie like Uncut Gems and you're tense and sad the whole time. But there's no greater truth to it because you're just seeing sort of an asshole be an asshole for two hours. So maybe they feel like they didn't get something larger out of it. Whereas not only did I feel like I got something larger out of it, you know, just the fact it's a big commentary on greed and just how it can sort of twist someone, but I was just amazed at how they did it, specifically with, you know, Sandler's performance and the camera work and stuff like that. So maybe it's just the fact that it's kind of a very tense movie about a person that is ultimately unlikable, but I think just the lengths that they go to make him unlikable while still having a sort of likability about him because he is Sandler... Yeah, is something that I really appreciate, but I can see how most people won't. But I just think that the huge thing, especially with this movie, is I feel like a lot of people saw it because it was Adam Sandler. It wasn't what they were expecting, and they may have judged it accordingly. Yeah, well, there's two kinds of people that watch a movie. There's the kind of person that goes in for entertainment, and then there's the kind of person who goes in understanding that that's not the only reaction that warrants a good film experience. Yep. That's it. It's just, a, it is interesting that the audience, wider audiences have seen the movie and have spoken loudly that they are certainly not at all <laughs> happy with tense Adam Sandler yelling for two hours. But man, does he know how to yell. He, and here's he my question. Does. All right. Up until I saw this movie about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I was convinced that not a single person... Not a single performance could um, challenge my notion that the best actor Oscar should go to Adam Driver. And I won't lie, I'm, that notion is a little challenged because I absolutely love Adam Sandler in this movie. I'll, I'm going to put it this way. Adam, I, I think of this all from a strategic aspect, not necessarily. So in my mind, Adam Sandler and Adam Driver, two Adams, mm-hmm. a tale of two Adams, they both put on excellent performances and you're splitting hairs at some point if you're trying to rank one above the other. And from a more strategic standpoint, you should say that Adam Sandler, as someone who very rarely gets the opportunity to win these kinds of things, should probably be the one to win this. Yeah. And Adam Driver, who will most certainly go on to make many more movies with equally as good talent, because he often does... He's more often doing these kinds of movies than Adam Sandler is. True. You know, this is Uncut Gems is a once a decade kind of Sandler movie. Although we're getting more of them recently. We did get two in two years. Although I don't expect that to continue. No, I know. I definitely don't expect it either. But it's nice to see we can get some. You know, Adam Driver, he'll get his chance. Adam Sandler, I'm not sure when that chance is going to come up next. So give give it to him. It's just nice to be reminded every once in a while. Throw him a bone even if he has been making dumb Happy Madison movies all these years. We, we're going to have to wait for Jack and Jill 2 before we get Uncut Gems 2. <laughs> Safety Brothers direct Jack and Jill 2. You know, you know the, him and Daniel Day-Lewis are friends. Maybe Daniel Day-Lewis could play a, an estranged sister. <laughs> Adam Sandler plays the whole family this time. <laughs> oh, no. Including the kids. <laughs> Call it Martin Scorsese. Get those get those de-agers on Adam Sandler. Get those Netflix de-agers on the... You didn't answer the question. Oh, what was the question? Oh, I don't know, actually. I was saying that I now think... I can, I'm torn between the two Adams as to which one I think deserves an Oscar. And I don't think there's a single other performance that... Well, I enjoy Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton. 
I can see why he wouldn't be nominated. But yeah, it's between those two for me. I say whoever wins it, great. I think we should do an Oscar episode, but should if we? it would be like this the entire time, maybe no. not. <laughs> if we're doing an Oscar episode, I, okay. I take it seriously. This All is just right. these are just hypotheticals. Yeah. We don't even know who's nominated yet. We're just That's saying true. who deserves it. Who's the best performance? I'm just going to I'm literally going if there's an Oscar episode, I'm just going to be upset the entire time that Willem Dafoe isn't nominated for The Lighthouse cuz I know he's not going to be and I'm already sad, but that's an that's a discussion for another episode. Well, we can only hope. You do think that this Punch Drunk Love Adam Sandler is still better than Uncut Gems Adam Sandler? Yes, that's fair. That's just me though. You do quite enjoy that movie. It's a great movie. Uh, I don't know why you don't love it as much as I, I do. I, I think it's a good movie. It's a great movie. It's perfect. It is just one of the weaker Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I It's it's in the bottom I'd four. I'd say it's possibly his strongest. The best. I don't know about that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There'll be blood. Phantom Thread. See, uh... Punch Drunk Love is just the editing, the soundtrack. It's got you I know, love the score. Great performance from uh, Adam Sandler, and you know the narrative might not be your cup of tea, but I, I don't know. It's it just the way it's not the way it's constructed is just a lot of fun, and it, it flies by, and I don't see anything wrong with it. Except for maybe one thing, but I won't. I won't say anything about that. I can honestly, I can honestly feel that your exact same sentiments you have about Punch Drunk Love are going to be the sentiments I'm going to have to use to defend Inherent Vice when you finally watch it. You never know. I might. I might like you it. You never know. You could. There are always those anomalies. If your if your opinions on Under the Silver Lake have anything to go by, I have a feeling I will be standing alone with that movie too. Uh, but should we a little final thoughts on uncut gems? I feel like this has been a very scattered discussion. It has. It's been a discussion. And it has not it's necessarily been a discussion review. about Sandler in general. I feel uncut gems. It's great if you want to feel tense and enjoy a great performance for two hours. Go see it. If you do not like to feel very tense during your film watching experience, it might not be the movie for you. But it certainly is very well made. Yeah, I almost feel weird saying this, but I almost feel like this is a, the movie you have to have with a beer or something. <laughs> Take the edge off a little, please. Uh, you know, it's a buyer beware kind of thing. That's it. Yeah, definitely more tense than Good Time. I think better than Good Time. Great I think movie. It, it's a very interesting character study, and uh, it's with, certainly entertaining. It's an interesting character study with a deceptively dense and detailed plot as well. It is just juggling a bunch of different horrible ideas together. And it's beautiful. I love it. One of the best of the year. Big fan. Uh, should we talk about this next movie? Uh, yeah, we should. Uh... Okay, so we watched the BFI movie of the week is Douglas Sirk's The Imitation of Life from 1959, I believe. And it is, it is on the critics list. The critics... Top ten great top one hundred greatest movies of all time list BFI. I don't know why I felt the need to reiterate. That's what we were doing, but <laughs> that is. And uh, yeah, so what were your thoughts, Chandler? This is a weird movie, man. <laughs> it was full on classic Hollywood melodrama. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> if that's your thing, great. It's not mine. <laughs> it's not. It's not my thing either. And the whole time I was just, I I don't know. It's such a hard movie to explain, but I'll try to give the, a brief synopsis. It is a movie about two single mothers who meet by chance, one white, one black. And it's a movie about the white mother who's an aspiring stage actress and the black mother who is trying to convince her daughter that being black isn't terrible. <laughs> It's such a weird movie. <laughs> I honestly, I was, before we started recording, I was like, what am I going to say about this? Like, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just... No, it's not God, bad. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, our director of the week, Douglas Sirk, is yet another one 
in the canon of directors who fled the Nazis. Okay. Did an ever really? popular okay. subgenre. <laughs> the British, British really uh, giving them those honorary mentions for fleeing the Nazis. <laughs> but this is still not as good as Earrings of Madame Day, I'll say that now. Well, he, he fled because of his wife. He was not Jewish himself. So. Oh, okay. His wife was Jewish? His wife was Jewish. He actually, he was his second wife, and his first wife was a fervent supporter of the Nazis. Interesting. And their son was actually an actor in many Nazi propaganda films. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Because Douglas remarried a Jew, yeah. his wife barred him from seeing their son. Oh, wow. Uh, and then he left the country, and so his son was left with the mother, and he starred in a bunch of propaganda films and then subsequently died in the war. So, sad. Oh, wow. Sad. Oh, God. Well, you almost make me want to like this movie out of uh, pity, but no. See, I separate the art from the artist. I feel artists are very interesting, but their art must be judged for its own merits. Yeah, and it's just a strange movie because I feel like it's about so many things, but doesn't necessarily execute any of those things well. It's one of those things where everything... The lighting, the acting, the actors, the actresses, everyone's graceful on screen. It's all beautiful, nice to look at. But the storytelling itself is not particularly graceful. It really isn't. And the fact that, that we constantly are shifting between these two mothers, like the first half of this movie is like, I don't know. I feel like so many of, it's almost like they're cramming like three or four different movies together into one and if it would be it would be different if all of these little subplots sort of converged or had some thematic coherence but they really don't and the whole time i'm just thinking okay this would be an interesting movie you know mom trying to get into the acting game a little late oh this would be an interesting movie mom and daughter are in love with the same man oh this would be an interesting movie girl tries to hide the fact that she's black from the world but the fact that we're constantly shifting between these three things, and it kind of ends abruptly and very unsatisfyingly. I kind of checked out in the last 10, 15 minutes of the really movie. Is it really bad that I kind of laughed when Sarah, Sarah, what's her name? Sarah Lee? No. Yeah. Or The daughter. It, yes. The black daughter. Yes. I kind of laughed when she just got the shit beat out of her. I feel bad for saying it, but it was just so over the top. Yeah, it's just the it just music. Came out of nowhere, you know. It's it's class. It's everything you think of when you think of classic melodrama of just like the swelling music that's telling you what to feel. The over the overacting and there was not a quiet moment in this movie. The score was constantly on, and about an hour into it, I realized that God, this score must be as long as the movie. It is just it in. <sighs> It's the first movie on this list that baffles me as to why it's on it. Yeah, I I really was very interested to watch this movie because I hadn't heard of it before. Neither have I. I was curious to see what what was the appeal of the movie that got it on the list for critics, but not necessarily for it to remain like a, a film that's in the, the general knowledge. And I can see why this is not a movie that people talk about. It's... Yeah. It's a product it's, it feels like a product of its time. It really does. A response to social cultural issues of its day that it has some interesting things to say but it says them it's just so obvious and it doesn't really have any kind of greater depth to any of it and I don't know, not my cup of tea. I'm not sure why it got on this list. I really don't know either. I, I thought but to, I don't see any reason for it to be here. I thought to myself, okay, is this like maybe it's like a, a greater commentary? Maybe it's a it's definitely a more um, a feminine angle. But then I thought to myself, well, what is it really trying to say? Because the part that I found the most egregiously baffling was the the um, the Sarah and Annie parts of the movie. I guess the whole thing is about like being. Don't not compromising who you are for societal expectations. I guess you, you, you have to be yourself, regardless of the consequences. Because if you're not, then you're not truly living. But I feel like that's the only thing 
that theme is only really applied to the mother, the white mother, whose name I forget. Well, you could also – no, it's also the the daughter who wants to be white even though she's black, although she looks barely – She Yeah, she looks black under a microscope maybe. But the thing that I don't understand is that, like, it's a movie that I, I don't know. It's just, yeah. It's so hard to sum up how I feel about this movie, but I, I just, I, especially the, the Sarah Annie stuff, I'm, that's the part that's most baffling to me is be, uh, mainly because it's the, definitely the thing that feels the most unresolved, I guess. Here's the thing that I found problematic with the whole movie is that if it's, Attempting to explain that you have to be true to yourself and you won't be happy if you're trying to do something differently. And the whole time I got the feeling that it was saying that the mother, uh, Laura, she was, you know, she kept going, trying to force her career and trying to be a famous actress. And the movie kept telling me that she wasn't happy doing that and that it was insinuating that she would have been happier if she had married Steve and become a housewife. Yeah. Was I missing something? Like, that felt I, no, like the I, message from that side of the movie. <laughs> I don't know. And the other side of the movie, I felt like, was a movie that it it was something that it they wanted Sarah to, like, be empowered by her race, but they never gave, like, a moment of empowering. Like, I got the sense that from Annie, from Annie's point of view, it was like, okay, yes, I'm a very, uh, I'm, I'm, essentially a servant to this woman but i'm doing this because i was gift i was born in a society that doesn't really give me a lot of opportunities but i'm working hard to give my daughter the opportunities but then the daughter's whole point of view is that i should be proud of who i am and i should be empowered by it but then those two never really connect or converge in any way and it just the ending it just ends out of nowhere yes the more I think about it while we're talking, the more I'm like, nothing is resolved with the ending. Nothing. It's really, there's a funeral. We we look at our characters all being sad for a bit and then cut to black. Because why not? Death is final. That seems like an ending. Why not? I mean, yeah, because, you know, obviously Annie dies and she doesn't get that reconciliation with her daughter. Her daughter comes back, but literally only because her mom died. She's, I feel like she, her her issues with her own identity aren't solved the the daughter really <laughs> still in love with the man that her mom wants to marry and i guess the mom yeah i guess the mom's a famous actress she did that is she still a famous actress is she not what is happening know. she's rich and i almost felt like there was a point in the movie where they're uh the the white mother is moving into that house and uh, Annie is like, you know, she's looking at all these things that she's going to buy. And she's like, do you really need to buy all these? This is such an expensive house. And then the mom, the white mom says something like, oh, they're necessary expenses. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is all going to fall apart. And maybe she's going to be go horribly into debt. And then that line never goes anywhere either. I will say that I liked the opening credit sequence. The diamonds. Yeah, that was yeah, cool. That was cool. Yeah, I like that. That was nice. Maybe that should that should have been the opening uh, credit sequence for Uncut Gems. <laughs> That's <laughs> There's what I was our connection. The whole time. But you know, th- I went into this podcast not 20 minutes ago thinking oh, that was an okay movie, and the more and more I think about it, I'm just like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why this movie? Was the director on the BFI? I guess the acting was fine. The acting was good, and the cinematography was good, and the production design was good, but oh, the story was just so dumb. So needlessly dumb. It just points out to me that, you know, a lot of the movies back in the 50s when this was made, they were all like that. That was the standard. And Yeah, but there are better I ones. Am, yeah. But the point is, is that I'm so lucky that I am living now when the idea of what a narrative can be has broadened so much. Oh, yeah. And I hate to to bring up Godard, but this really started with all that, with the French New Wave, you know, going off and doing something different. It didn't work, but that was the start of <laughs> I mean, something most people new. would argue that it did work. I just don't yes. I feel like neither of us think it worked. I don't think it worked. I think it worked for what it inspired in the future, but not yeah, on its own Yeah, I merits. agree. I agree. And something, because like nowadays we have something like, Uncut Gems, which could not be farther from 
The Imitation of Life. That w- that's a movie, Uncut Gems is a movie that could never have been made 50 years ago, much less maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, now I could see the argument for Uncut Gems being on this list more than The Imitation of Life. So basically you're saying you're happy you didn't grow up in a world where you had to work nine hours at the sock factory to save up <laughs> enough sense to relieve the stress of lives with the imitation of life. Yes. And, you know, and for someone who's, someone who's working in a sock factory for nine hours, I could see if they, they, they might like this movie, but I don't. I could just see Letterboxd reviews from this time period. It was nice. I got to sit down and the theaters were air conditioned. <laughs> music was nice. <laughs> I don't li- I don't listen to music all that much. My neighbor's gramophone stopped working. We, we lost our phonograms in the last bombing run by Germany. It was nice to hear music again. The ra- the radio stopped working after it fell an inch. I haven't heard music this nice since my mother's funeral. <laughs> Well, oh. <laughs> I have nothing more to say about this movie. I guess for our audience, the only thing I could say is it's in English and it has a nice opening <laughs> opening t- title. You don't sequence. have to read. <laughs> so if if that's if that floats your boat, I guess you might like it. If you're into soap operas, you'd like it. I oh oh yes. I don't know if I think I hated this more than last year at Marion Bad. It's probably it's probably the last on my list so far. It's, it, I think because even the last year at Marion Bad, I'm intrigued by it, but I'm still frustrated. I was bored when I was watching this, and I'm more infuriated the more I think about it. Oh man, what a dumb movie! <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's like a, it's like a two out of five, maybe less. I don't know. This is this is the f- wow. I was going to be a little more charitable, but I, I I'm not. I'm not saying you're wrong. I came into this like thinking three out of five, but the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, this is really dumb. Yeah. And this is the first movie on this list that I straight up won't recommend. Well, there you go. It doesn't deserve to be on the list. It was a waste of two hours and four dollars. Um, I mean, I your grandma might like it, but chances are your grandma already saw it. For a while, I was convinced. I'm like, has anyone else seen? I thought to myself, when was the last time anybody sat down and watched this movie? Me and you might have been the only two people in the world that saw the movie in the past month. It didn't really have all that much many ratings on Amazon Prime, so. I didn't follow a single person on Letterboxd who'd watched it. I follow like 80 people. I don't follow all that many, and still, no one. It's just, it's just kind of, it's, it feels the most random thing to be here on this list. It's, you know, it's not French. It's not uh, groundbreaking and. It's not especially good at what it does. For anything, the BFI needs to redo this list just to get that off. If that's the only thing that changed, I'd say it was a successful. It's not even a bad movie. It's riding the line of being a bad movie. Yeah, I think we're beating a dead horse at this point. It Yeah. So next week we have. Uh, a movie from the director's list. It's uh, what is okay. it? Oh, I'm curious. I don't ever, for the record, I don't ever check these. I know. I just wait until it's always you say a surprise. It. So let me let me butcher this pronounce pronunciation. Oh, good. Real start. quick. Uh, Le Argent. Le Argent. Is that okay? Le That's the name th- of the movie. I think you just watched this or something. No, there's no way I could have just watched this. Uh, directed by Robert Brejon, Brejon et Bleu, Bleu de Duty, Robert Brejon. I definitely haven't watched this. I thought you watched what something. I watched... Pickpocket? I watched Brasson. I watched um, A Man Escaped. Ah. Oh, this one's 90 minutes, thank God. Oh, I liked, I liked A Man Escaped a good amount. I was surprised to see how well-liked it was. But let's see, I'm, I'm going to read a quick plot synopsis here. Awesome. I I like that plot synopsis. All right, I'm excited for this one. I have seen one or two other uh, Brejan, Brejan. I think it's Brasson. Brasson. Mr. B. I've seen a few films by Mr. B. And I'll just say I wasn't the biggest fan, but I I am happy, always happy to find one that I like. So, fingers crossed. So many French people. Uh, We'll be back next week. We'll probably talk about... We've seen a few movies 
We might talk about Little Women. We might talk about 1917 if we've seen it or... Little Women would be preferable. Or we could talk about Star Wars again. This movie is available on the Criterion channel for streaming and for oh, rent very nice. on other places. And that's about it. Fantastic. Just end it there. I hope you like this podcast. Please leave a like, comment, oh, and subscribe. Okay. Very sure. Yeah, yep. follow us. Follow us on the, the the social medias. I meant wherever you get podcasts, but that as well. Smash smash that like button if you're listening in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Binge oh. these episodes on the way to your uh, uh, to boot camp. I was going to say binge the episodes on your way to your job at the, the sock factory. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's stop recording in five, four, three, two, one.